Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 34 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, we head over to London, where Lion Tree executive in residence and member of parliament, Ed Vasey, sits down with Ricardo Zacconi, the co-founder and CEO of King Digital Entertainment a leading mobile gaming company whose franchises include the blockbuster Candy Crush, as well as Farm Heroes, Pet Rescue, and Bubble Witch. It's an amazing conversation about the future of mobile gaming and King's relationship with its 285 million monthly users. Enjoy. My name is Ed Vasey. I'm an executive in residence at uh, Lion Tree and a British Member of Parliament. And I'm here with my good friend Ricardo Zacconi, the founder of King, one of the most successful games companies uh, sold to Activision Blizzard about two and a half years ago for just shy of $6 billion. Ricardo is Italian. The company was founded in Sweden. 50% of its revenues come from the U.S., It's been sold to a French company, but we still regard you, Ricardo, as a British success story. And your headquarters are based in London. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Activision is actually a US company. Now the US is a major market for us. So I just want to uh, talk through with you the story of how uh, King came about. It was quite a journey. You started it in 2003. Your first foreign to tech was a dating site. That's correct. And uh, we started uh, not as most startups start in uh, Silicon Valley in a garage. And the main reason for that was that we did not have a garage. Actually, I didn't have even a flat. I started uh, as a guest in a guest room of a friend of mine, a very good friend, because I stayed there for two and a half years. Which city was this? Uh, this was in London. Okay. And, uh, and my co-founders were in, in Sweden. So in Sweden, actually, one, one co-founder was in London. We started uh, in, in the typical way with no money, and we put in all our savings. You'd made some money from your we original made, tech company. Yeah, we made some money from, uh, because before I worked in, in dating at, uh, yeah. at Udate, and we sold the company in uh, December of 2002. And so that money, I, I immediately reinvested in building King. And your background wasn't in games. What, what made you want to put your money into a games company? Well, my background was in digital because in 1999, I joined a startup called Spray, which in the space of a year went from 20 people to 800 people, but was one of these typical dot-com bubble companies. What was it doing? It was a portal. So we had all kinds of offers. We had a search engine, we had communities, and one of our channels was also games. Uh, We developed some of the first very rudimental mobile games at the time. And that was one of the reasons why we did actually games back in 2003 because we saw an opportunity in the market and we also had experience with communities and games. And we thought there was an opportunity to start something new in Europe. And what was the opportunity to identify? Because again, it's so easy to uh, kind of get chronologies wrong and forget about the tremendous change that's happened in the last 10 years. But when you started, there was no iPhone and there was no Facebook. So what were the games opportunities then? No, that's right. And that's why we started on the web. And on the web at the time, the uh, typical model uh, for monetizing games was downloads. So you would pay for a download. And all the other games which were playable on the web were otherwise playable for free, but only with an advertising model. And we started with a model where you would monetize competitions uh, online between players. 
is in fact one of the first, if not the first, free-to-play model on the web back in 2003. And you're staying in somebody's apartment and you're starting this company. Was it a rip-roaring success from the get-go or what were the bumps and uh, obstacles in the way as you got going? No, I think we've seen uh, almost all obstacles you can find. At the beginning, we, as I said, we didn't have enough money, certainly to profitability. So we put in all our money after a year where uh, we funded ourselves the, the first year of operations. Because you sold your apartment, didn't you, to fund that uh, well? Well, yes, I think because I didn't have an apartment, yeah. but because London is pretty expensive. So I reduced all the costs I had. Yeah. I sold my car. Yeah. I had a car. I gave away my rental place and <laughs> I reduced all my assets and properties, anything I owned, to as much as could fit in the guest room of, of this friend of mine, which was about four meters by four, or four meters by three, actually. It was not very big, with one bed. And I'm quite interested in getting into the mind of an entrepreneur. So I don't have that mentality. How do you keep going? What makes you so focused on this story that you're going to give up pretty much all your material possessions? Well, it's two things. And any semblance of a kind of normal life to pursue this dream. Yes, I think there's two things. Number one, the wish to build your own company. This is really was in me since ever. And then you see an opportunity of doing something new, which does not exist in the market, which is differentiated. And you have a group of people, a team, which you rate extremely high, where you think you can actually succeed in the market because of the team and because and of these are guys you've been in business with before. So, so we we, well. we we built together the first company called Spray in back in 1999. Mm. We had 800 people. The other founders of King were the former CTO of Spray, the former chief creative officer, and the the two best developers and technology architects we had in the company. So those were really the best of the best. And you indicated earlier that Spray had sort of grown exponentially, and then collapsed? Well, at the time, the targets set by financial analysts, because the target was to do an IPO in 2000, were not profits, were first page impressions, then later they changed to revenues. And only after the, the Nasdaq collapsed, they changed to profits. And that's what basically suddenly was a major change in strategy. So we ended up not doing an IPO because the market was dead, uh, but we ended up selling the company to Lycos Europe in September of 2000, still for a very good amount of over $600 million, but unfortunately in shares and not in cash. So we ended up not making any money, but it was a great experience and I met amazing people. And every step you learn in life, every step is important for the next step. And this was a fundamental step for building King, both in terms of experiences of what to do and what not to do, and also in terms of people I met. Yeah, so that is, um, I think you've sort of encapsulated for me just there, the kind of what makes uh, the seeds of entrepreneurial success, which is experience, whether success or failure. And it sounds to me like Spray was a bit of both, actually, big success, and then the way it was sold, perhaps not being ideal, meeting the right people and forging real bonds, and having that experience of having been, you know, started and run businesses before, before you find the one that's going to really take off for you. Yes, I would add one more ingredient, which I think is probably the most important ingredient, and it's actually resilience. Yeah. So never to give up. I've seen many people who started companies or, or were involved in startups back in 99, who after the crash in, in 2000 left the digital space, saying they want to look for something which is more robust. And I thought it's such a great experience. Uh, it's the most expensive uh, MBA you can do. It would yeah. be so stupid to actually leave and, and do something else. So I continued in the space. And then I did the online dating. 
And uh, on anything we sold after a relatively short time after I joined a company which I was not the founder of. And then I continued with the same people. And after a while, you learn about business models, you learn about the marketing on digital, but more importantly, you know great people with whom to work with. And King was also not an easy experience because we went through so many difficulties, ups and downs. You, you sort of anticipated my question. Was there any point when you felt you should give up with King? I never felt at any moment in time to give up. But at many moments in time, I felt that actually this would be, you know, we are two minutes away from disaster. Uh, from disaster yeah. And uh, one of these moments was in December of 2003, where we had no more money. Of course, we were raising money in the meantime, but it was a very difficult time for raising money. And one of our angel investors basically had promised to sign and, and invest in us for a long time, over two or three months, but he didn't sign because there was a strange structure with trustees who had to sign instead of him. So the signature fundamentally didn't come. And it was the day before Christmas. I had to go back home to take a plane, go to Heathrow, and the signature still didn't come. I was literally sitting on the floor waiting for this fax to come at the time they used to have a fax. And finally the fax came through, but the fax machine broke in the middle of it. And the part of the contract with the signature was actually on the wrong side, so it did not come through. This was one of these yeah. histories from the time. And so we had to buy another fax machine, <laughs> and that's where you learn early on never to save on hardware. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, we had a few more times where we had really difficult, really, really difficult times. Probably the toughest time in my professional career was when the web got disrupted by Facebook and games, the entire web games business got disrupted by Facebook. So we were in, I'm talking now about in the time of 2009, Facebook launched in 2004. They opened up to business partners in 2007 and Zynga uh, launched their most successful game, Farmville, yeah. in uh, June 2009. The, at that time, we were the largest partner of Yahoo, and Yahoo was the largest distributor of games on the web, by far. The Yahoo Games channel, where we were very, very prominent, lost 45% of their users in one year, between April of 2009 and 12 months later. And for us, it, was, it felt as if someone had taken the, the floor under our feet. It was so fast that we thought we had technical bugs. Only after a few months, we realized actually this was competition and it was, this was Facebook and it was not a tech bug. And this was the toughest time. So just to say about, uh, it took us two and a half years to find a way to crack Facebook and to bring our games from the web to Facebook, reinventing the model, but bringing the same games which were successful on the web to Facebook. But this is uh, kind of what I wanted to uh, explore with you what the kind of breakthroughs along the way were from Four Kings. So presumably mobile came first. Mobile was uh, moving from the PC effectively on the web to mobile was the first iteration, new iteration for games. Uh, no, actually the first iteration was Facebook. So, so the, Facebook, the first face, week... Facebook before mobile. So yes, let's Facebook. talk briefly about Facebook then. You suddenly work out that the entire kind of games ecology is moving to Facebook. So you're having to reposition and redirect the company without wishing to sort of impose on your thinking in 2009, the thinking that now exists in 2018. There's a whole debate from every stakeholder imaginable about Facebook's place in their ecology, publishers being the most prominent. What is the relationship between a games company and Facebook? How does it work in terms of what it was like 10 years ago to what it's like now? Is it well, a partnership? I can tell you Facebook is essential for your success. Yes, I can tell you how it was before. 
So before Facebook, we were on a classic portal. We were on Yahoo. If you wanted to basically be in games, uh, you had to be on the Yahoo Games channel. And we had to uh, rebrand ourselves under the Yahoo brand. We had to do deals with revenue shares, but also combined with advertising and so on. When Facebook came in, it became a much more democratic model where basically anyone could become a partner with standard conditions on Facebook. And if your games were good, then you could also afford, on top of being promoted by Facebook, also to buy advertising on Facebook. So it was actually open to anyone. It's a very democratic platform. And that actually was a great opportunity for us to scale our games, which were new on Facebook. And that's basically what we did. At the time when we started, the number one company by far on Facebook was Zynga. Before we launched on mobile, we went from nowhere to number two on Facebook by slowly launching new games and acquiring and learning about how to acquire users in a profitable way. And that's the way how we scaled. And Facebook made it easier for people to play with each other than it did before? or The novelty with Facebook was that it was easier than before to build games where you could play with others. And the reason is that you could connect people who were friends and uh, have them play together. So you could see basically who of your friends was playing and you could see what their score is versus your score. Before, it was basically very difficult to understand uh, whether two people were connected and were playing. And in this way, we could offer to the player a service and a, and a game experience, which was much, much more fun because instead of playing with someone they didn't know, they could play with someone who actually was a real friend. And then comes mobile and the whole arrival of apps. Yes, we were relatively late when we launched on mobile and our entry on mobile. We did some experimentation before, but the success came when we innovated again, not only when we went on Facebook, when we went to mobile. By and this is what, 2011? Uh, we launched our uh, first game on mobile, our saga game on mobile in August of 2012. And it was a game called Bubble Witch, Bubble Witch Saga. And then we launched, this was in August of 2012. And in October of 2012, we launched Candy Crush on mobile. The difference between all the other games which were available before, also on mobile at the time, was that we launched the games which were truly cross-platform. So you could start playing the game on your computer up to, for example, level 100. And then you could install the game on your mobile device. And from the first time you installed the game, you could continue from the level you left that on your computer. So from level 101. If you played on your mobile device, you could play with your friends wherever they were, whether they were playing on a computer or on a mobile device. There were many challenges to resolve, not only from a technical point of view, but also from a logic point of view. So for example, how do you resolve when a user plays the game up to level 100 on their computer and then they start playing on their mobile device, does not connect yet, plays their 50 levels, and then suddenly decides to connect. Basically, what results do you show on what level, as an example. So we resolve through both the technical challenges and the logic challenges of how to create the best possible user experience. And we launched Candy Crush in October of 2012. We immediately went on the top of the charts because Candy was already quite successful on Facebook, but we could leverage the entire user base of users we had on Facebook to immediately install the game on mobile and they could then play immediately with all their friends wherever they were. And so we, un we unleashed a virality across all platforms, which was never seen before on mobile. If you put on a graph the growth we had in that month, 
busy, it seems as if we had done nothing before. Uh, just to give you an idea, we had the board meeting in October, sorry, just a month before the launch of Candy Crush on mobile, where we approved the entire budget for the following year. By the end of December, so a month and a half later, we had already achieved the entire budget of yeah. the following year and passed it. Amazing. I think what is fascinating, funny enough, just kind of as an observation, really, and slightly away from King itself, but is uh, I think the story you tell reminds you of how tremendous the forces of disruption are. You know, one forgets that 10 years ago, Yahoo was the dominant platform, then Facebook disrupted. And then, of course, Facebook itself had its own challenges in moving to mobile. They were slow to realize that every interaction was going to be on mobile. So moving from desktop to mobile was a disruption from themselves. And uh, you've had to adapt the company to every disruption going, but very successfully. So what does it feel like over the 10 years of, this is the 10th anniversary of the App Store, you are the most downloaded, aren't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. What does that feel like? Well, it feels <laughs> that we have to we have to do more. We have to look forward and, uh, you know... So when... you don't pause and reflect and just think that is an astonishing achievement. When you're on the uh, subway system and you see people playing Candy Crush, how do you feel? No, I think how I feel is the following. I think that we have managed to build a brand which uh, has an incredible recognition factor. And so it's a massive asset we have and that's why we are doubling up on this asset so we are investing more than ever in innovation in candy crush both in the existing game but also in the next two generations of the game and there are many players who are playing the game today but there are also many players who are not playing it you've got about 250 million users across all your games Yes, and so who are not playing it anymore. And that's a massive opportunity for us to reach out again and, th- and say, look, you love this way of playing. Try this innovation because it's new. So tell us the economics of the games industry or your part of the games industry is fascinating. I mean, there's a mix of everything. There's payments, in-game payments. There's the balance between asking people to make microtransactions in a game against playing for free but getting a lot of advertising and the balance between those because I think you... You moved away from advertising to micropayments and now you're sort of moving back into advertising. Uh, that's right. So I think the difference, I have to go back again to the, to the web, to the old times. Mm. At the time, uh, there were no microtransactions. And I think the introduction, the ability to process microtransactions, very small amounts, like 99 cents, has really changed dramatically the industry and has made it actually more accessible to many, many people. Because the way how we offer the games today is you can play it all the levels of Candy Crush in the entire game completely for free. You don't have to pay. So the way how we monetize is you have five lives to complete the journey. If you lose the five lives, then you either wait for usually 20 minutes or you watch an ad or you purchase a basically a pass to continue immediately for 99 cents. And there are some other boosters you can also buy. But the majority of our players are not paying. And that's why we are now introducing advertising to say, look, if you want to get these boosters, then uh, instead of paying, you can actually in the future also watch a video ad. And the reason why advertising now is more interesting than what it was when we started on mobile is that advertising now has matured a lot. It's not just about gaming companies which advertise, so our competitors, but also very strong brands. Most brands, most Classic brands now advertise on mobile. Uh, so we're not sending our users to a competitor, number one. Number two, the cost of advertising on mobile has also skyrocketed. So for, in terms of economics, it's now more attractive as a model 
than than what it used to be at the at the time. When we promote advertising to our users, we always do this in a way that does not interfere with the user experience, but is accretive to the user experience. So we give you something because you watch a video ad. We don't just stop you from playing. And in this way, we pair advertising revenues with high retention at the same time. Could your advertising business become a separate business? Could what you learn from serving ads to your users in a way that doesn't put them off? Because it's a big, big issue about how off-putting digital advertising can be to the user experience. You could take that lesson and give it to other platforms. Well, we are doing it, but we're doing it within the group. So we are building the advertising business as a business which serves the entire Activision Blizzard group, including esports. So yes, definitely. And that's something run out of the US or is it run out of here in London? We are building it up, but the leader of the era and the tech uh, we are currently building is in San Francisco. Tell me another aspect of the games industry. You refer to, you know, upgrading the games and so on. So in some ways that's sort of parallel with Hollywood. You've either got the franchise like Star Wars or the big kind of one-off mega hit. I mean, how much of your, I'm sure you don't have sleepless nights, but how much of your, if you're running a big, big games company, how much of your time is spent thinking, how do I make, keep uh, bona fide a hit like Candy Crush relevant and engaging to users and, and bring back people who stop playing the game to how do I R&D and research and launch the next big hit? Well, we have to do both. We have about 2,000 people. And the first priority is, first of all, to serve our current customers, which means to make sure that Candy Crush is, at any moment in time, an incredible game which surprises you every day. We call it live operations. So deliver every day live content to the users. That's how we keep them entertained uh, when they play every day. And also innovate with larger features in the live games. Secondly, we innovate in the franchise, meaning we are currently working on the next two generations of Candy Crush with real innovation and where we experiment a lot, more disruptive innovation. But at the same time, you also need to invest in in the crazy things, in the in the next big thing, where sometimes you have some bets which are more let's say we have a better feeling because it's, for example, in the area of casual, which we understand very, very well. But we also are investing in uh, game ideas which are completely open. And here it's always about talent. Uh, So you have to understand what is the right talent for what challenge and then uh, put the right talent on on each of the different challenges. There's so much I could talk to you about. I'm going to try and keep myself as focused as possible. I mean, you're a global company, offices in Seattle, San Francisco, New York, London, Stockholm, you can finish the uh, we list. We are in uh, <laughs> in Barcelona. Yeah. So the largest offices we have are in London, Stockholm and Barcelona. Then we have another office in uh, Sweden, in Malmo, in the southern part of Sweden. Uh, we are in San Francisco, Seattle, New York. And in, uh, in Europe, we are also in Berlin and in uh, Bucharest. And then we have an office also in Tokyo. And I just want to talk to you about, you know, the U.S., Versus might be the wrong word, US versus Europe versus China. So to be successful, you have to be big in the US. The US is a key market. I mean, what is the difference in your view from kind of the games market in Europe and the games market in the US in terms of of being a company, in in terms of growth and funding and access to finance and how you grow the company? I mean, at what point do you say as a a European gaming company, we're only going to go so far unless we go over to the US and crack that marketplace? Well, I think that differently from when we started now, it's actually usually a game which is successful in a European country can be successful everywhere, at least in the Western world. Western mm-hmm. world, I'm speaking, talking about uh, yeah. US, Europe, LATAM, 
first of all. So I think we have demonstrated the only prerequisite is that the game is really innovative and new. If it's not new in a the market, then of course it's not going to succeed. There is a big, big advantage in being first mm-hmm. with an idea. China is a bit more complicated. I cannot talk with giving you a key learnings in terms of how to succeed because we have not succeeded yet. It's on our to-do list. We've been working on it for some time. It's a market which is hyper-competitive with a different ecosystem. There is, for example, no Google platform, no Google store. There is no Facebook. So if you want to have virality, if you want to offer a similar user experience, you have to work with local partners. And there are many, many players. And Tencent, of course, is investing in a lot of Western games companies, Correct. like Epic and so on. Yes. That must be the, where the market will go, that big global games companies will take some Chinese investment or a Chinese partner in order to crack that market. Or they have local partners. So, yeah. for example, Blizzard is yeah. very successful in China and they have a local partner in China. And so mobile and Facebook have transformed games in many different ways. One, for example, is many more women play games than they did when I was growing up. When you were growing up, it was very male-dominated. Uh, games are much more casual. You can play them for five minutes while you're on the metro. Now eSports is arriving as a huge new market in the games market. It's a slightly unfair question, I guess, but how do you see the games market developing in the next five years? Are there any kind of key trends or anything that you're going to see that you think will make other changes to the marketplace? It's going to be very interesting. First of all, I think that mobile is a platform which is going to be there to stay because mm-hmm. it's a very personal device and it's our primary point of focus in terms of growth. I think it's going to be a platform for growth, not only for the existing games, but also for offers which today are played on console or PC. And also to have more cross-platform play, I think, is a trend. But console will, I think, obviously still continue to thrive. I mean, games like Fortnite and so on, people like playing them on consoles. Console players usually are much more skilled and avid players so they can be very, very fast. So I think that if you are a, for example, Call of Duty player, you can do more than 120 moves per minute. And it's actually impossible to be as fast on uh, yeah. on a mobile device. But I think that uh, Fortnite has shown that you can have an offer which is very attractive cross-platform, uh, delivering a similar experience as you have on a PC or on a console on a mobile device. I just want to shove in a few buzzwords <laughs> In terms of how, I mean, everyone talks about artificial intelligence. Is there stuff going on with AI in games and also voice? I'm wondering whether in a few years' time we might be, instead of using a mouse or or a console or anything, we might actually be directing ourselves in a game on voice. And obviously, the other buzzword, virtual reality, the kind of uh, all-absorbing game where you're actually in the room. Yeah. Well, artificial intelligence is already now a reality. We're investing a lot in AI. Currently, it's focused to deliver a better user experience and also to do better marketing. So both both of these. But I think we are at the beginning of AI in terms of really creating an experience which is more personalized for the user, not only in terms of optimizing the interface, but also really in terms of games experience. And everyone is investing, but we are investing a lot in this area. AR versus VR. We believe more, we meaning King, we believe more in augmented, augmented reality rather than virtual reality because I think that our games fit very well the screen of a phone. You don't need to put on a 3D glasses. It's, it's quite bulky also. And yeah, it's, exactly. And it's difficult to stay in the game for a longer time. And we have seen games like, for example, Pokemon Go doing really well in, uh, in yeah, AR. Good point. And, and so it's an area where we're also experimenting with. The other question was... 
Uh, VR, ER. AI, VR. Yeah, uh, voice. Oh, voice, voice. I think voice is very, very interesting. We know that many players today want or like to talk to other players yeah. while, while they play. So that is a very real-time social experience. Now, I, today there is an offering where instead of talking to an, a real other person, you talk to an AI, to a bot, or you control a game using voice. I haven't seen any yeah. successful games there at this moment in time, uh, but I think it's only a matter of time. I think that I can imagine, for example, a story-driven game where voice yeah. might play a much bigger role. I mean, I think, think with VR that it's probably going to be an experiential thing that you would kind of go to a venue and put on VR glasses and wander around a big warehouse and so on. But uh, it's very difficult to see it kind of being commonplace in the home compared to augmented reality, being able to wander around. and. I, th I think there, there was a big buzz at the time with yeah. 3D TV. Yeah, exactly. And I feel that uh, basically VR has some obstacles in terms of adoption, not just because of the technology. I think technology is actually quite far. Because yeah. is, is, the experience is, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. But in terms of ease of adoption, it's, it's quite bulky. You cannot take it with you. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't really suit a mobile lifestyle. Just one last question on games, because I want to talk to you about tech more generally in, in Europe. But in the UK in particular, there's a kind of whole policy angle of which is negative towards games. Uh, in fact, I was on television this week defending Fortnite because obviously people have said, oh, it's terrible for kids, they play it too long. I mean, do you get any kind of backlash from people saying, uh, you know, if only Candy Crush hadn't been invented, our IQ would be 10 points higher. You know, people are wasting their time playing these terrible games. Or is there a well, whole cultural thing around games that you have to fight against? You might as well say, if television had not been invented. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so if we all were reading books, I think it's probably more appropriate because I think that the difference between television and games as a form of entertainment is that games is a much more active form of entertainment. It's not passive. You need to really use your brain. And all the games we offer are games where you need to crack a challenge. And it's a logic challenge. And number one. Number two, we are very careful in terms of uh, not only time spent, but also money spent. So in terms of time spent, we have our core business model, how we started was that uh, if you, you have five lives, if you finish these five lives, you actually are stopped from playing and you need to pay if you want to continue or you have to wait 20 minutes. And all our games are tailored in a way that they can be played just for a few minutes in the retail space of time. I just want to ask you, because I know that you are, as a sort of angel or early stage investor, you're particularly focused in Italy, where you come from? Uh, we invest globally, but then uh, I think there's a big opportunity in Italy to really support and build a tech ecosystem, purely because the proportional investment in tech today is still probably one of the lowest in Europe. But in terms of the preparation, the school, the university preparation, and the, the hunger, the willingness of people really to succeed is very high. Uh, I believe the percentage of smart people is the same in every country, across every country and across every gender. That's why we do a lot in, in DNI, and that's why I believe also in Italy there's a big opportunity. And I'm trying to help the tech ecosystem there. Because I just wanted to, it's a sort of echo of my earlier question, whether you, um, uh, in terms of your kind of early stage investing, are you confining yourself sort of to the game space and related areas, or would you look at anything, and are you seeing any trends in, European tech that are emerging that are worth highlighting? And again, do you see anything in the European tech ecosystem that is qualitatively, if you like, different from the US? Are there different lessons you've learned from looking at 
early stage companies in Europe to what you might see in the US? Quite yeah. a wide ranging question. No, there, but basically- actually, we confine ourselves, but actually, we confine ourselves exactly in the opposite way. Meaning, for uh, competitive reasons, uh, we invest in anything but games. Okay. So we invest in everything but games. We focus ourselves more specifically on uh, what we understand and where we can actually also uh, have a lever, which is mobile consumer experience. Right. So we understand consumers. We've been doing consumers since 1999, and we understand really well mobile in terms of not only in terms of tech, but also in terms of user acquisition. And that's where we have been focusing our investments. We have been investing across the globe. So we invested mainly in U.S. companies and European companies. We have not invested yet, unfortunately, in an Italian company, but we invested in Scandinavian companies, in companies in in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. In fact, in terms of trends. Give us a couple of highlights of companies you've invested in that you think kind of represent a trend or are going to go. Well, one company, which is, for example, very interesting, which we invested is a company called Hooked on the West Coast. And it's a a new way of consuming stories. So they use a messaging format where you're in the middle of something happening and you can follow two people really messaging each other, integrated with video, with pictures, and it's going really, really well. It's taking off. Another company which invested is a company which created, in, in this is a comp- it's not mobile, but is using mobile for customer acquisition, which um, created a booster seat for children, which is completely innovative. You can put it busy in a purse, usually a booster seat, which is much, 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 yeah, much, yeah, I much, know much, from much thicker. My- Experience going on a plane with a booster seat. Yes, and this is busy the size of, it goes in, in a purse, very, very small, the smallest in, in the market. And this came from a personal need because I uh, traveling and, uh, and found the, the founder uh, online and then I contacted him saying, hey, this is a great idea. Uh, maybe I can help you. He must have uh, jumped out of his seat <laughs> when he got you it as a funny. customer. He's, he's a great guy. He, he was, for, he's, for example, based in Israel. Oh, brilliant. The company is called MyFold. MyFold. Yeah, M-I-F-O-L-D. How do you get your deal flows? You're using the same uh, techniques we talked about at the beginning of this interview. You're backing uh, people you believe in who might have been there and done it before, might have had a few uh, knocks on the way, got their experience. Are you backing the team or the idea? You're backing a mix of both? No, I always back the team first. Yeah. And good teams uh, usually come up also with good ideas. We invest only our own money. So we don't have to report to anyone. We don't have to invest, which is really nice. Yeah. The way how we, we get deals is I get a lot of people busy contacting me, sending me ideas. I don't have time to investigate each of these ideas. So I forward these ideas to Christian, who is managing our angel fund, Sweet Capital. And he reviews the ideas. And once a month, he presents us with a list of potential ideas for investment. And then we decide all together. Brilliant. You know, if I was to kind of describe the UK tech ecosystem, I'd probably say it's things like uh, fintech disruption in terms of banks and payments. I would probably say artificial intelligence and the whole kind of deep mind ecosystem. I would say that kind of health tech and education tech are becoming quite a trend and obviously cybersecurity. So in terms of consumer, is there any trend you can identify? Or are they just? I think we are seeing many startups which are second generation of when people have done either their first company or have had experiences in larger companies in digital. I think the app of the year last year was a UK company called Calm. And before doing that, he did another company which was in games, Michael Acton Smith. So he did did an incredible, in brackets, comeback, amazing guy. And uh, and so, you know, I think we're at the beginning. The market for digital and digital entrepreneurs is one where you have to be very patient. 
It takes usually 10 years before you start seeing the fruits and the results. And I think now we will see the slowly coming in the fruits of more than 10 years of investments in digital in the tech ecosystem in the UK, which I think is a number one ecosystem in Europe. Brilliant. Quite, I won't ask you about Brexit. <laughs> I think you did a great, great job there. <laughs> <laughs> we did do a great job in yes. uh, supporting UK tech and we'll have to see what uh, Brexit does to it but I think one of the hopes we can hold on to is the biggest challenge you face is is going to be talent but in terms of digital the ability to enter new marketplaces is so much easier than if you were sitting running a manufacturing business in the UK My views on Brexit are twofold I would say First of all it's very important that we avoid creating barriers. And the first barrier, of course, is talent. We must make it as attractive as possible. Today, uh, the UK is a very attractive place to be because of capital, because you have other talent, because you have all the large companies, Facebook, Google, and Apple, which are basically based here. So we must retain these large companies in the UK and we must leave the doors open to any talent who wants to work in the industry here, making it simple and easy mm. and also capital. Historically, the UK has been the most tech-savvy of the European nations. And if you were basically discussing tech in Europe, they were very much supportive of tech. Now, this voice is lost in Europe. I think it's important that Europe does not lose a view of tech basically being a key of investment and supporting tech rather than trying to, to hamper tech, to be able to compete not only with the American companies, which I think are not the, the future competitors, but in particular with Chinese companies who have a unified market. And secondly, my second thought is about Brexit is that I think it's important to understand the reasons for Brexit, which go beyond the reasons. I think Brexit is fundamentally a protest because the welfare today is worse than 10 years ago. And that's a protest to say, look, we need to do something different. And this protest, this voice is heard in a similar way in other countries, not just in the UK, even where you don't have Brexit, like for example, in Italy with the yeah. Five Star Movement. Absolutely. And so I think tech can actually do something. It's probably one of the few areas where the economy has grown over the last 10 years. And I think that's an opportunity to create jobs also in the UK, but also in Europe if we do our job there. Yeah, and improve a lot of the services that people use as well. Yes, but create jobs and create revenues, which also need to generate totally tax, right. tax income exactly. and do, be, be good for everyone. Great. I want to ask you um, the questions that we ask in every podcast of every great person that we interview, a bit about what's shaped you as you've made your journey as an entrepreneur. We want to know, for example... Would you say you ever had a mentor? Is there somebody that you turned to when you were younger that uh, guided you in your career? Or it may not have been someone you knew. It may have just been an inspiration. Yes. What shaped me were always the tough times when I was brought to my limits and when I thought I could not make it and then I did make it when it was really, really tough. Those are the moments that shaped me. The person who I look up most and who I really followed was my father. Yeah, he was a dentist. He loved to be a free person. And that's why he chose to be a dentist among, besides the vocation, because it allowed him to be his own master in some ways. To yeah, work self-employed. Self-employed, yeah. And so I think I got this. And then also the early years in, uh, in consulting were very important, where I learned that you need to think beyond the obvious and uh, anything is possible. You never accept defeat. And when everything seems to be very desperate and there is no other option, you need to just think differently take a different way of thinking, like saying, okay, this doesn't work. What would you do if you had to start from the scratch and you had these assets? What would you do then? Brilliant. What's your kind of favorite TV show? Do you ever watch television? 
<laughs> I unfortunately don't have time to watch TV. Currently, I'm watching the World Championships. The World Cup. The World Cup, yes. Even though Italy is not in the World Cup. I know. I know. That, don't don't uh, remind me, please. I don't know when this podcast will be broadcast, but by the time people listen to this, we may already know who won the World Cup. But at the time of recording, England, and we think of you, obviously, we've adopted you as British, could potentially be playing Sweden, where, of course, you co-founders come from. And Are you supporting any team in the World Cup? Well, this is something where I need to be very careful in what I say, so I will stay out of this. The good news is that if either UK or Sweden is going to win, I have a reason to be to cheer. Podcast. Do you ever listen to podcasts? I have to be sincere. I actually don't, but I have to say this, your podcast is definitely one which I like, not because you're interviewing me. <laughs> I don't listen to podcasts either. Is it uh, dangerous for me to ask what your favorite game is? <laughs> oh, yes. Do you have to answer Candy Crush? No, I don't have to answer Candy Crush. <laughs> Candy Crush is, of course, a game that I love, but currently, every evening, I'm playing with my son, Lego Dimensions, uh -huh. which is really creating a binding between me and him, which... Uh, which and is Lego Dimensions is online, or it's a... It's a console game. Okay. And then uh, King Game, which I love because it was... Uh, my favorite game at the time on the web is a game called Jungle Bubble, which is not available on mobile, is, and... Uh, but we, it was the base for building a game which was very successful on uh, Facebook, the first most successful game, which was Bubble Witch Saga. Just tell me, where does the word saga come from? That's a whole new concept in games that you effectively invented. Yes, saga was a concept where you would play on a path with many, many steps, a saga. And as soon as you master one, then suddenly you have the next challenge. It's a very long path. And so most successful games which were successful on the web, but only with one level. We brought them on Facebook and mobile with many, many levels. And uh, with this path, which you basically uh, need to master and you follow. And that's why we called the games we are launching uh, Saga Games. Do you get influenced? Do you remember Dungeons and Dragons? Do you get influenced by that kind of... Well, it's a different... You know, when I was a kid, I was rolling dice and going through levels on a yes. board. Yes. It's a slightly different way of playing because yeah. you don't need to roll the dice here. Yeah. You need to pass it by but busy mastering the puzzle. Dungeons & Dragons has, has created history. So, Leadership. What is your view on leadership? How have your views on how to lead an organization change? I mean, one of the things I find fascinating talking to someone like you, mainly because I've obviously never gone through it, is this idea of kind of being in the spare bedroom one minute and 10 years later looking back and you've got 2,000 people and you've had to make that journey, three people to hiring talent, eventually running this huge organization. I mean, how have your views of leadership evolved and emerged? I think that, you know, there are many different leadership styles. There are different strategies. And vision also changes over time. But I think there's one thing which I think is constant. And this is for me really the essence of leadership, which I think is trust. So I think a leader must be trustworthy towards the team. The team must trust the leader that he will do the best for them by doing also the best for the company. And there's sometimes where the best for the person is not necessarily the best for the company, but the leader needs always to take care of the own people. That the leader is safe enough to you know, be flexible for the future. He does not get stuck on his ideas and doesn't listen. And the trust that if someone wants to be innovative, and innovation means making many, many mistakes, because of out of 100 mistakes, one thing would go really, really well, that I'm not going to get fired and that I'm allowed to do mistakes. Because especially in our space, which is very, very competitive, if you don't 
have the ambition to come up with something which is really, truly innovative, you will never succeed. And so if you don't trust that I am allowed to experiment to really come up with something really innovative, then I will never succeed. So I think leadership is, at the essence, is trust. Fantastic. How do you make the change from, you know, there's a slight contradiction between the mindset of an entrepreneur, as you were talking about earlier, you know, utterly, utterly focused, passionate uh, belief that your idea is going to, to being a manager, slightly more boring role of having to kind of manage the day to day. And there, there are many instances, obviously, where the entrepreneur has not changed to be the chief executive. Many companies that grow, one of the key battles is to move the entrepreneur back, as it were, and let the managers take over. But you've made that transition from being the entrepreneur to being the CEO. I've made a transition by bringing on board people which are much better than I do in managing the day-to-day and managing the operations. I think... So one leadership quality might be clear-sightedness as to what your... Well, I think the key quality is to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and to act early, not late. So we brought on board some amazing people very early on in our journey. When we just cracked Facebook, we continuously review the company structure and the organization to bring on board the best talent to bring us to the next level. I think that uh, the key criteria for hiring is to hire people who are better than you are. If you don't do that, you are dead. Uh, so um, tell me, Ricardo, because <laughs> all this can be inserted in at different points in the podcast. Okay. The games industry itself, I mean, I found this, uh, when I became the minister for video games, by accident, it was part of the portfolio, as it were, that I took over, I discovered this incredible industry that I embarrassingly as a policymaker knew very little about and most politicians tend to approach the games industry as you know we've got to do something about violent games and I discovered that it was an industry that's uh, bigger than I think film and music combined now well, there uh, are 2 billion people playing games uh, worldwide generating about 140 billion dollars in revenues out of which about 50% is mobile and mobile is the fastest growing area with 25% growth year on year in 2017, there were 175 billion mobile app installs. So it grew by 60% versus the prior year. And 76% of the revenues generated on mobile apps are generated by games. So games is definitely a very important area, I think, in, uh, in terms of growth. In some ways, the sky is the limit because there must be global parts of the world. Just, just as we focus on how many, many more people are getting connected to the internet. There must be countries, you know, maybe continents like Africa or whatever, where games are still have a huge opportunity to grow. I would say that if you look at this, the biggest countries in terms of app downloads, today the number one country in the world is China, followed yeah. by India, and then followed by the US. Wow. So I would not have put India second. That's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. And it's growing really fast. Any indication of where the other growth markets might be? Are there areas of the globe underserved by games? Well, we know that the population of Africa is growing from 1 billion to 2 billion by the end of the century. Wow. So also in a big area of growth. Europe and the US together have less than 1 billion uh, inhabitants. Fantastic. Maybe another interesting aspect is in the European app economy, there are about 2 million employees working in mobile. 2 in, million people working? In Europe. Wow. And that's a market that's been created in the last 10 years. Yes, yes. Another interesting stat 
in uh, Europe, there are 41 tech unicorns, i.e. companies which are worth more than $1 billion. And 25% of the unicorn companies which were founded in the last 15 years are games companies. And to start a game company, you don't need 1,000 people. You, need, you don't need a large amount of capital. Yeah. You need busy a couple of guys sitting in a room who have a great idea. You know, five to 10 people can start a game company. You need the luck of finding your Hollywood blockbuster, but also the agility that you talked about in terms of being able to adapt, despite being you know, an up-to-the-minute technology field, can still be disrupted. Yes. Ricardo, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed hearing your story and... I think the insights that you've given are going to be really fascinating for our listeners because I think just uh, understanding the whole kind of games ecology, the importance of games, how you run a successful games company, but also how you run a successful tech company and also your continued involvement, how the company is evolving, but also your continued involvement in supporting early stage tech companies. I think you've given us a really unique perspective. And frankly, as a Britain, a European, I'm also glad that we're hearing some European voices on the world-beating Kindred cast. Thank you so much, uh, Ed. It was great. <laughs> Thank you. Great to see you again. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.